there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. My topic for tonight is, this is the second half of, of, I had two under the heading of a steadfast heart, and this will be the first under the heading of a simpler life, but the title is The Presence of Christ. Tonight and tomorrow morning I'll be speaking on a simpler life, and tonight the subject is The Presence of Christ. Do you want a simpler life. One way to simplify it is to begin each day with solitude and silence. And I can well imagine the protests, but that's impossible. Is it? We've been talking about choices for which the Lord is going to hold us responsible. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And he knows our limitations and our circumstances and our living conditions. I want want to ask you this question. Can you offer what you consider these impossibilities to him with confidence that he will agree with you? If it's really something that you desire, can you not rearrange your life in order to make it possible? I do believe that the Lord God will help you, and he always wants to hear prayer for help. He's eager to hear your prayers, and I do believe that it is entirely possible to have quiet time alone with the Lord, preferably early in the morning, because that there's a great deal of spiritual, scriptural pre- precedence for that. We sing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. And I wonder how many times we've lied (laughs) behind the hymn book as we sang that hymn. My father set the example for us by getting up between 4.30 and 5 almost every morning. And people would ask him, how do you do it? And his answer was a very simple one. You have to start the night before. It's just not going to happen unless you eliminate a certain number of things, probably things which everybody else tells you you must not miss. But you're going to have to make some hard choices. It will simplify your life. In that little book that all of you have now, I trust, Daily Strength for Daily Needs, the passage for uh, June 28th, happens to fit in very nicely, as do many, many other passages in this book, with the things that I want to say tonight. It begins with a verse from the Psalms, the Lord preserveth the simple. And the simpler we are and the simpler we desire our lives to be, the more we're going to find the faithfulness of God in his preserving us as we attempt to do that. And then it's followed by a little poem, thy home is with the humble, Lord, the simple, are thy rest. Thy lodging is in childlike hearts. Thou makest there thy nest. And then from Francois de la Motte Fenelon, a wonderful uh, French bishop, 
whose writings have greatly influenced my life. Now, when you read this little book of devotions, you're going to find a good many Catholic names. And I have to tell you that I was afraid to mention the names because who knows what people might say going out of here. So I called up Mrs. Graham this afternoon, and since she's the one that saw to it that this book was reprinted, for your blessing and benefit, I said, dare I mention the names of those for, from whom I'm quoting? And she said, by all means, do so. She said, they've been teaching me, and I have certainly been deeply instructed by very many uh, books written by uh, Catholics. It's called Catholic Spirituality. And let's not lose out on very powerful spiritual meat because of the label of the author. And this is a principle that I learned also from Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael was an Irish Protestant. You can imagine the prejudice against Catholicism that she grew up with, and yet she taught her, her fellow workers and her children in India to learn to take the wheat and to leave the chaff. And there are many, many wonderful books that you will be cheating yourself of if you just don't happen to like the label or you happen to know of the denomination or something that you would not thoroughly endorse. So let me read to you from Fenelon. This deliverance of the soul from all useless and selfish and unquiet cares brings to it an unspeakable peace and freedom. This is true simplicity. This state of entire resignation and perpetual acquiescence produces true liberty. And this liberty brings perfect simplicity. The soul which knows no self-seeking, no interested ends, is thoroughly candid. It goes straight forward without hindrance. Its path opens daily more and more to perfect day in proportion as its self-renunciation and its self-forgetfulness increase. And its peace, amid whatever troubles beset it, will be as boundless as the depths of the sea. Let me give you some little suggestions about this quiet time, this solitude. For those of you who feel that you might need something like that, please uh, understand me. I, I know that many of you don't need that kind of help, and I would be the last person to arrogate to myself the any kind of authority over how you want to carry on your devotional life. But I do get many letters from people asking for a little bit of help. And I've tried to think through some of the things that I've tried to learn in my own devotional life. And one of the things that helps me when I begin, because I'm of the earth earthy and terribly easily distracted, I find prayer and silence and solitude very tough disciplines. So it helps me to put myself consciously, specifically, in the presence of God. I go to a place by myself, and that's much easier for me than it is for you mothers or fathers of young families, I'm sure. But you may be able to manage it, as my father did. He got up long before any of the thundering herd came down the stairs. And we knew when we came to breakfast that our father had been on his knees for several hours before we got there. Put yourself in the presence of God. Just say, here I am, if you'd like. 
whatever words may come to you, uh, realize his omnipresence. He is everywhere. So you are not just a solitary soul, but you are one of millions who are praying all over the world. One of the hymns that Jim Elliott and I used to love and we used to sing together, both morning and evening, different times, uh, because it speaks of both morning and evening, is that lovely one, The day thou gavest, Lord, has ended, the darkness falls at thy behest. To thee our morning prayer ascended, thy praise shall sanctify our rest. And I'm particularly helped by the stanza that says, As o'er each continent and island the dawn brings on another day, the voice of prayer is never silent, nor die the strains of praise away. And it's a wonderfully fortifying thing to me to realize, although I'm one woman alone in a, in a small room by myself in the presence of God, I am a member of this tremendous innumerable company of Christians in earth and in heaven. And there's never a time, there's never a minute of any hour of any day when there isn't the voice of prayer going up. As o'er each continent and island, the dawn brings on another day. The voice of prayer is never silent, nor die the strains of praise away. So I join my one solitary note in this orchestra with this tremendous invisible company called the Communion of Saints. And the Communion of Saints means saints on earth and saints in heaven. There isn't any distinction. Remember that God is looking down on you in love. Remember that he lives in you. Galatians 2.20, Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Staggering fact, Christ in me. Christ in me, the hope of glory, Paul says in Colossians. Then remember that he is here, present, in this room. Then humble yourself with deep reverence. And it helps me to take a posture of humility. That could be whatever is best for you. Um, we were trained in our home to, to kneel to pray, and so that is my usual habit. There are also times when one wants to prostrate oneself flat on the floor, face down, because you have some special petition to make to the Lord, or maybe that's the way in which you want to humble yourself with deep reverence. Many in the Bible stood before the Lord, and there were those who sat. Um, stand, sit, lie, but I would not recommend that you try lying in bed. I like what, um, you know, this morning person thing is a lot of baloney, but nobody ever heard of it until the last few decades. But people used to say to my father, how in the world do you do it? And he just said, well, you have to start the night before. I don't think he was a morning person. I don't think there is such a thing. It's just an excuse. But I love what Oswald Chambers says, get up and think about it later. <laughs> he had a way of just zeroing right in. Ask for grace to serve and worship God in your meditations. Then read the Bible. 
asking the Holy Spirit to open your mind, your heart, and your will. Meditation is an exercise very few of us Protestants know anything about, and it's a very difficult discipline. But it means to choose a passage from Scripture, try to visualize it, try to put yourself in that situation, and I think the Gospels would be the place to start learning that because the Gospels are stories and it's not so difficult for us to try to put ourselves in a setting such as the Sermon on the Mount or the boat in the storm. Put yourself in the scene and ask God for correction and instruction and help and blessing. Now, by all means, this understand that this order is not divinely inspired. I'm just giving you suggestions, and you can rearrange the order in any way you like if, if these suggestions are of any help. When we ask God for correction and instruction, help and blessing, it might be well to pray Thomas Akempis's prayer. And his dates are, I think, way back around 1100 or something. And he wrote, Empty my heart of all useless care and anguish. That will simplify your life. Empty, empty my heart of all useless care and anguish. That may mean that God wants you to forgive somebody whom you have not forgiven. And that will enormously complicate your life because you're having to lug that baggage of bitterness and unforgiveness around through all your days. If we honestly want God to empty our hearts of all useless care and anguish, we need to think, are we refusing forgiveness to someone? That will be a huge load lifted and demolished if we ask the Lord, Lord's help in doing that. Then thanksgiving, intercession, two other aspects of prayer. Intercession is prayer for other people. And it helps me to have lists. I can't remember all the people I'm supposed to pray for. I have a list in my head for, of people that I pray for every day, but I also have to have written lists, one for Monday, one for Tuesday, etc. And offering is an act of giving. The word used by the old writers is usually oblation. It just means any offering made to God. And although Back when I was 12 years old, using the prayer of Betty Scott Stamm, I made that once and for all commitment. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. That is an act of oblation, an offering, and it doesn't hurt to repeat that daily. Although God heard you the first time, uh, it's a good thing to remind ourselves that this is the way I want to live today. I am utterly at his disposal. And then acceptance and praise. And all of those elements are contained in some form in that comprehensive prayer. Uh, when Betty Scott said, I give up, she was relinquishing. When she said, I accept thy will for my life, that was acceptance. And when she said, I give myself my life, my all, that was oblation. 
Acceptance and praise. Now you may say, what a long list. I got lost halfway down or in the third line. Um, even if I had gotten it all down, there isn't any way I could have time to do all those things. How much time does it take, actually? It's, it, it can be done in a few seconds, some of these things that are on here. Uh, the act of oblation, just, Lord, here I am. I'm your servant again today. How many words does that take? You can ask God to help you deciding those things. And the great question is, what is of paramount import importance in your life? Is it important that you put yourself in the presence of God once a day, consciously and quietly? Now, all of the above, I think we can legitimately label prayer, whether it's putting myself in the presence of God and not saying anything. Uh, silence and solitude are forms of prayer. Reading the Bible is a form of prayer. Making the oblation is a form of prayer. So all of this comes, is embraced, I think, in that, in that word. Because when Paul says pray without ceasing, he certainly is not envisioning us on our knees every minute for 24 hours a day. How do we go about praying without ceasing, especially during our work? Well, we're going to come to that under the next heading. Point two. The first was suggestions for your quiet time. Now, the practice of the presence of God all day. This is what stumps so many people. If you're sitting at your computer and your job involves computer all day long, how in the world can you possibly be praying without ceasing? Or if you're just baking a cake in the kitchen and you're trying to follow a recipe, you cannot be thinking about the recipe and beating the eggs at the same time and praying at the same time, and God knows you can't. But have you ever thought about the fact that every act is meant to be an offering to God. Even if I'm brushing my teeth, now I happen to be human and so God has given me a human body and there are certain things which are necessary. I have to eat and sleep and exercise and do all of these things. And Paul said, whether you eat or drink, things in which there is no virtue, those are just very humble human necessities, but he says do all to the glory of God. Eat and drink, brush your teeth, go to work, drive the car, clean the bathroom, to the glory of God. If the smallest things, the least meritorious things, can be offered for the glory of God, then we can learn to practice the presence of God. Some of you are familiar with a little booklet called the Practicing the Presence of God by a young monk who went into the monastery. His name was Brother Lawrence. And he went to the monastery in order to learn to be holy. He wanted to learn to be spiritual and to be holy and to be like Jesus Christ. And he thought that the monastery was the ideal context in which he could learn that. To his utter dismay, he was assigned to the scrubbing of the pots in the kitchen, which certainly didn't sound like very spiritual work. But he wrote this. He didn't actually write a book. The book was written by those who talked to him and asked him questions about practicing the presence of God. And these were just his replies, very simple replies as to how he did this all day. 
when Amy Carmichael was doing evangelistic work for six years before she began the work for the children, she was well supported by people back in Ireland and England because she was doing what they considered was spiritual work. But when she gave up the evangelistic itineration and began taking care of little babies and washing diapers and fixing formulas, there were those who didn't think there was anything very spiritual about that, so she was no longer supported by them. And one man sent a gift, but he said, I want this to go for the spiritual work of the Donor Fellowship. And she sent the, the gift back again because she said, right now, it happens that our need is for buildings, for bungalows. And she said, in our experience, souls are more or less firmly attached to bodies. And we can't leave them lying around in the open. Well, the man received the gift back again, and that was the last she heard of him because there wasn't any spiritual work to which that money could be directed. The Apostle Paul said, I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. And in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, there's a verse that my father, oddly enough, used to speak to a boy's school at commencement. I cannot imagine that very many commencement speakers would use a verse like this, but this is what it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.1, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Mind your own business and work with your hands. Now, can you imagine telling a bunch of 18-year-old boys to make it their ambition to lead a quiet life? Well, that's what the Bible says. I didn't write it. Paul was inspired when he did. A quiet life is a simpler life. Ask God to free you from the deception of materialism. And that's something that we have to watch like a hawk. Deception of materialism. And we live in the most thoroughly materialistic society that's ever existed, I guess. A life lived in God, in the presence and power of Christ. A quiet life. Is it boring? Not for me, it isn't. Never. God fills the emptiness. He knows how to do that. And one of the ways in which you can simplify your life and live in the presence of God and the power of Christ without quite so many distractions is the elimination of clutter. Am I going to ring any bells out there? Why do people accumulate stuff, junk, useless things, stuff in the back of the closet that you have no idea is there, and if it disappeared, you'd never miss it? When's the last time you took your purse and dumped the whole thing out on the top of the bed to see what in the world was in all those little crannies? Is it your security to surround yourself with collections of things, to have a whole closet full of stuff, about one quarter of which you ever wear when somebody else needs it, and obviously you don't? Is it the fear of deprivation? We've had a number of students living in our house. We always have somebody living in our house. It's usually been a seminary student or a college student. And it's been very interesting to see their different attitudes towards clutter. 
and they're all men. Uh, I, I don't think men are, generally speaking, as bad as women are when it comes to saving clutter, but there are some exceptions, of course. And with one of them, it was, he admitted it was the fear of deprivation. If he didn't keep all this stuff, one of these days he was going to need something that he didn't have. And so he keeps plastic bags <laughs> by the thousands. You, know, you never know when you're going to run out of plastic bags. Is it greed? Is it possessiveness? Is this where your security lies? Make do with less, and you'll have more to share. If you don't need it, try what Hudson Taylor did. Every year, Hudson Taylor of the China Inland Mission went through everything he owned, and whatever he discovered in the pile that he had not used in a year had to go. It was either discarded if it was no good or it was given to somebody who needed it worse than he did because he decided, if I've gotten through the year without this, I don't need it. We can always say, but I might need it next year. <laughs> next year the Lord might come and you're going to be answerable for all the stuff you kept. <laughs> that was Taylor's attitude. And this lovely letter came to me just a week or so ago which I thought illustrates very beautifully this simplicity of life that we should be aiming at. She writes, as a blind mother, I often worried about my inability to take my children out and about, for example, to the swimming pool, the library, or the zoo, as I would wish. Lord, I cried out one day, my child is missing out on so much because of my inadequacy. The busy world seemed to pass me by, and I felt inferior to those other moms who were packing such delicious things into the development of their little ones. My child, of course, was unaware of this struggle. Here, her days were filled with me. She was a contented, fat, and laughing baby, curious about everything within her small world, oblivious to what she was missing. One day, I questioned God once too often about the things that she lacked because of me. And he questioned me back, did you ever consider that my desire for this child is not to be running here and there and everywhere like other children? She says, I had prayed for this child. He had given her to me, to me, not to any other mother. He had chosen this mother for her not a more capable, exciting, stimulating mother. I was humbled by this revelation and began to wonder what great plans he had for her that she needed that peaceful, boring, early experience. Now, years later, in the midst of her busy, often chaotic teenage schedule, I realize what a treasure it is to have grown up in a home of peace and quiet. Those were precious days of fellowship, between a mother and her child. What a time of undistracted love and mutual enjoyment. This child now embraces life with inexhaustible and inexhaustible exuberance, yet still knows how to draw away by herself and enjoy solitude as well. Are you fathers and mothers training your children in quietness, solitude, silence, 
My parents taught us to sit still. We had to sit still at the table. We had to sit still at family prayers. We had to sit still in the car. There were no seat belts in those days. And of course, we had to sit still in church. There were no children's churches in those days. It's possible to teach an 18-month-old child to sit still. Did you know that? You probably didn't know that. But my parents knew that, and they practiced it. They put it into practice. And my daughter has a quiet hour every afternoon. Those who are of napping age, nap. Those who are beyond that, which is usually around two or somewhere between two and three, everybody must be in a room alone. And they must be there for one solid hour. And it is clearly understood that they may not come out of the room. There are no drinks of water and no trips to the bathroom. That has been taken care of beforehand. For those who don't don't read time, she puts a timer in the room. So they can't be running into mama's room and saying, can I get up now? Can I come out now? They have to be quiet. They cannot play any music. They cannot use any tapes. They cannot play any games. They cannot talk. They have to amuse themselves. And it is amazing what sudden silence descends on that house of eight children. It is magic. And it's my daughter's salvation. Because she gets a 20-minute nap every afternoon. She can go to sleep just like that because it's habitual. And then she gets up and does things for 40 minutes that she couldn't do if she had all the children underfoot just want to encourage you that it is possible to simplify your life. And those children have learned an absolutely priceless discipline, solitude and silence. Jesus went away to lonely places. He got up, the Bible says, a great while before day. A great while before day. And he taught us to be like that blind mother's little baby perfectly contented with the simple life. But somebody, I'm sure, is sitting there thinking, but I have no quietness, no solitude. Learn to practice the presence of God in your kitchen, in the schoolroom, in your workplace, in your car, in your neighborhood, at the computer. When I sit down to my computer, I can see a little slip of paper that I have taped to the bottom of it, and it says, Lord, when, you call, when thou callest me from this deliciousness of employment, may I, pla- may I pass to the employment of angels. And that's not Elizabeth Elliot's original, of course, but another one of those tutors of mine from hundreds of years ago. My work at my computer, of course, is writing, and I don't consider that recreation at all. Uh, Humanly speaking, I wouldn't call it deliciousness of employment. But I'm learning that if this is the thing God wants me to do, I want to find joy in that. And when this task is finished, may the day come when I will be given the employment of saints and angels. As you make an oblation in that first encounter early in the morning, make an offering or an oblation of each task as the day goes by, each new thing. If you go to the grocery store, make an oblation of that trip when you get into the car to leave or when you walk into the store. And of course, you don't have to do anything visible or audible to other people. Amy Carmichael 
loved her itinerant evangelism for those six years. And Christ was with her in the bullock carts and in the tents and in the hot, dusty villages. But she also found the presence of Christ in the nursery when she began to rescue those little children. Christ was present. Christ is present in the hospital, in the prison. Some of you know that, I'm sure most of you know, that uh, Fanny Crosby was blinded when she was about six weeks old through a doctor's mistake. And when she was nine years old, she wrote this very remarkable little poem. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I, am not, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. And I used that on my radio program one day and I got a letter from a prisoner. And he paraphrased it. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I am not free. I am resolved that in this cell contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm chained, I cannot and I won't. Jesus says, lo, I am with you all the days. All the days. I remember one morning waking up in the jungle. I was on the usual three-day trek from the last mission station to where I was living with the Alcas, and we had no airstrip at that time, so we had to walk two days by foot and one day by canoe. And that particular night, uh, we had done half of the canoe trip, and then we had we stopped, and the Indians made a little shelter for me out of leaves, and my daughter and I slept in that, and then they made their own leaf shelters, and they kept the fire going. And during the night, it began to rain, and it poured and poured and poured. Those Indians had the genius of being able to build a little leaf house in about 15 minutes that could withstand a whole night's heavy downpour. When I woke up that morning, I can assure you, I did not relish the idea of getting in those canoes and starting out in that downpour. And I just felt as if I cannot stand this one more time because it can be very cold and miserable sitting in the bottom of a dugout canoe in about eight inches of cold water and the water pouring down on you all day long. What a day, I was thinking. How miserable. And the Lord reminded me, lo, I am with you all the days, this day and every day. I will never leave you or, or forsake you. Just accepting the simple word of God is such a marvelous simplifier in our lives. We stew and sweat and strain and complain. And the Lord in quietness and gentleness is saying to us, I am with you. I haven't let go of you. I know exactly what's happening. It gives us stability of spirit. Paul wrote, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced, and I love the translation that says, I am absolutely sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a simplifier. A steadfast heart, absolutely sure, leads to a simpler life, utterly at rest in the promises of God. And lastly, the most important thing about my having a simple life is that I will be beginning to be qualified by the grace of God to bring peace and simplicity and quietness to somebody else. And we should be the sort of people who walk into a room and bring the peace of Christ. Instruments of peace, as St. Francis of Assisi prayed, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. I have that framed on the wall of my study. Worry has no place in a steadfast heart. And to eliminate worry is to bring great simplification to your life. I pray that God will give me the kind of attitude that brings quietness and stability and equanimity, evenness of mind, calmness of temper. And you mothers of young children, you have to teach your children to be calm, and you will do that most powerfully by example, without raising your voice, without repeating commands, speaking to them in a quiet, calm, controlled tone of voice, serenity. We could say a great deal more about bringing the presence of Christ to others. We could spend a lot of time on that. But it is a part of what it means to be an ambassador or uh, to bear the kind of fruit that Christ is asking us to bear. We're not here for ourselves. We're here for the life of the world. And Jesus said, the bread that I will give is my body, and I give it for the life of the world. We are meant to be broken bread and poured out wine. We are not we do not belong to ourselves. We belong to Jesus Christ. We are here for the life of the world. And when you teach your little children courtesy, you're teaching them that great principle of the cross, not that you're going to use that term, but the great principle of the cross was my life for yours. The bread that I will give is my body, and I give it for the life of the world. Are we prepared to follow him? in that self-abandonment and self-giving for the sake of the world, for the life of the world, for others. And another thing that gives me such peace is to know that God only gives me one thing at a time to do. I used to get terribly upset by the pile of work, and there's just no way I'm going to get through this, etc., etc. And I can look back and I see somehow or other, miraculously, and by grace, I got through it, what I couldn't do. My second husband was quite a joker. I've been married to three jokers. And one of the things he used to say was, they said it couldn't be done. He tackled it with a smile, and he couldn't do it. And uh, 
there have been a few things like that in my life too. But one of the greatest simplifying principles in my life comes from an old English parsonage down by the sea that has this message inscribed apparently in the wall. I don't know where this parsonage is, but the message is do the next thing. And I learned that from my mother. She used to tell us just do the next thing, calm down, do the next thing. Then I went to boarding school. The headmistress used to tell us, do the next thing. And I didn't know till after my mother had died, and I found the source of this in her little prayer notebook that she left behind. And apparently this is a poem that tells where this, these words come from. Presumably they're even older than, much older than the poem itself. Just listen to this and see if this doesn't give you a clue as to how you may simplify your life. From an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in the twilight a message to me. Its quaint Saxon legend, deeply engraven, hath, as it seems to me, teaching from heaven. And all through the hours, the quiet words ring like a low inspiration. Do the next thing. Many a questioning, many a fear, many a doubt hath its quieting here. Moment by moment, let down from heaven, time, opportunity, guidance are given. Fear not tomorrow, child of the king. Trust that with Jesus. Do the next thing. Do it immediately. Do it with prayer. Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing, leave all resultings. Do the next thing. Looking to Jesus, ever serener, working or suffering, be thy demeanor. In his dear presence, the rest of his calm the light of his countenance be thy psalm. Strong in his faithfulness, praise and sing. Then, as he beckons thee, say it with me, do the next thing. And Bernie, you remember hearing Mrs. DeBose say that, don't you? There's a man down here that was in that same high school with me. They turn up all over the place and we're all a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> But uh, that's what she said to us. The peace of Christ is what he wants to give to us. The presence of Christ. He wants us to bring his presence into the world. We begin by putting ourselves in the presence of God. The best way in the world to begin our day before we talk to anybody else then we have the opportunity through all of the day's work and trouble and joy to practice the presence of God in the humble things, the ordinary things, and never make a distinction, a dichotomy between spiritual work and secular work. For a Christian, there is no secular work. A Christian plumber is not a man who works with Christian tools and Christian drains. He is a plumber who is a Christian. 
And a Christian writer is a writer who is a Christian, not a writer who limits herself necessarily to what we would think of as spiritual subjects. We practice the presence of God all day long in every way. And then lastly, we are to bring the presence of Christ to others, which would not be possible unless we had received that and lived in that presence ourselves. There may be some here who really do not know the presence of Christ in your life. There are many counselors here. There are many people who would be delighted to talk to you if you feel as though there's something very greatly lacking in your life. May the Lord give you grace, <clears throat> grace to seek him for that. Don, shall I go ahead with questions? Because I see my time is up. My husband's been giving me signals back there, but I do have a few questions, quite a few questions, more than we can get through in 15 minutes, but we'll see what we can do. If the woman has a more dominant personality and the husband is very laid back, <laughs> how can the wife encourage the husband to be the decision maker? Don't make the decisions. And I'm not being facetious about this at all, but I think we have to go back to the Garden of Eden. Who made the decision first? It was Eve's idea to disobey God. Adam, of course, was responsible to be her husband, her protector, her provider, and he failed in that responsibility. And instead of saying no and making a counter decision, he went along with it. So it's ingrained in us women to take the bull by the horns, to run things, to be manipulators, to be schemers. And if the men aren't doing it, then we have to do it. And I hear this all the time from women. In the church, we have to take over all these different things that we're not supposed to do, but we have to do them because the men are not doing them. And in the home, I'm making all the decisions. I run the checkbook. I run the household. I do this. I do that because my husband doesn't do it. My question is, have you tried not doing it? Just back off. And if everything falls apart, which of course is the dire prediction that they always make to me, well, the whole church is going to fall apart if we quit this, fine. Let the church fall apart. Let the home fall apart. Maybe the men will wake up and realize that this is their responsibility. But I can't think of a better way to encourage your husband to be the decision maker than to just say to him, if he says to you, well, what do you think we should do about this? Well, honey, why don't you tell me what you think we should do? And whatever he says, accept that. Even if you think it's crazy. <laughs> I was raised in a strong Christian family, and my parents raised me with solid moral convictions. However, I find myself today to be recently involved in a sexual relationship with another Christian single. I know this is wrong. How do I obtain the strength to say no when I return home? I give you Isaiah 50, verse 7. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Take Isaiah 41, 10. 
Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I will help thee. I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Read the whole of that marvelous hymn of Martin Luther's, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Now, of course, we have an ancient foe who seeks to work us woe, and that's exactly what he's been doing in your life, isn't it? He's been working you woe, and his craft and power are great, and he is armed with bitter hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, and Jesus Christ is on the side of righteousness. It may be that this person has never actually surrendered to Jesus Christ and said, Lord, I need you. I come to you just as I am without one plea. If that's what you think you need to do because you never have consciously submitted yourself to Jesus Christ, talk to one of the counselors here. But by all means, believe that God will help you. But God is not going to coerce you. He is not going to force you to say no to that man. He has given you a will, and he is going to help you. But it is your responsibility to say no. And if I were you, I would not see that man again. I would write him a letter or get somebody else to make a phone call and just say, you're not going to hear from me again. Don't meet him face to face. And if it's difficult to avoid him, don't do anything you can to avoid him or have somebody with you when you have to see him. My husband and I have been believers for over 20 years and have grown spiritually. I know he's responsible for my spiritual growth. I appreciate that. He's not steady with his devotional time and gets defensive if I say anything. I pray for constancy on his part. Then do I just keep quiet? Yes. <laughs> we are not our husband's moral custodians. God does not tell us that we are to straighten them out. And I'm the sort of person who wants to straighten everybody out. And the Lord is constantly telling me, shut up, back off, you let me handle this. So you're already praying for him. You've already probably needled him a few times about his not having devotions. You said he gets defensive if you say anything, so obviously you've said things. So... <laughs> Cut it out. <laughs> there are many times in this life that God requires me to be bold in the Lord. Would you please try to comment on how that fits in with your theme? Well, boldness does not in any way, uh, it's not inimical to my being gentle and quiet. There is a time to be literally quiet. There's another time to be, there's a time to be gentle. But boldness is certainly required also of a soldier, and Jesus sets the example for us, doesn't he? Jesus was very bold. Jesus could be angry and sin not. I don't think I can, so I'm not going to try that one. But we can be bold in the Lord and yet be quiet. And I especially want to urge women who are in the workplace to be gentle and quiet even in the workplace. We do not need to be in competition with men. We can be bold in a quiet and, and calm way. Bold in not backing down on Christian principles. But we don't have to be shrill. We don't have to be nasty. On the subject of submission, are you contending that a woman should remain in a physically abusive situation? 
There's never an escape from that question which comes all the time. You're not going to like my answer, but all I can say is, I think it's my job to tell you what the Bible does say. It is not my job to tell you what the Bible doesn't say. Jesus said, do not resist an evil person. Please don't come to me after the meeting and say, well, surely that's not what he was talking about. Who am I to say that's not what he was talking about? That's what he said. It's a broad, it's a simple, bold statement. Don't resist an evil person. And he says not once, but again and again, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. Does that apply in a marriage where a woman is in, a, in an abusive situation? I don't know. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I have ransacked the Bible for an answer on that one. I can't find it. So if you think that your case is an exception to the teaching on submission and all the rest of it, then that certainly is not my business, and I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong. I read, <clears throat> I read something in one, read something in one of your books about animals in heaven. Will there be specifically kitties <laughs> in heaven? And what about Tasmanian devils? <laughs> They're the ugliest animals I've ever seen, but God made them. I will give you the answer that a very wise old pastor named Dr. Ironside once gave to a lady who came to him and she said, I've just lost my little white dog and if my little white dog is not going to be in heaven, I don't want to go to heaven. Will he be there? And Dr. Ironside, in his marvelous, sweet, gentle, humorous way, he said to her, Madam, if when you get to heaven you want your little white dog, I can assure you he will be there. And I would say the same thing. I, I would like to have my little black dog my little Macduff in heaven, and it's very possible that he might be there. If I want him, I know he will be because we can lack nothing when we get to heaven. But, you know, the Bible also does say that everything that hath breath shall praise him. So I don't see any reason why C.S. Lewis's picture of all the animals with their cackling and neighing and mooing and barking and meowing and all the rest of it in that, um, what is it, the last battle, I think, that he describes that. Why shouldn't it be that way? God made the animals. He loves them just more than we do, I guess. Maybe he'll weed out a few. <laughs> How were you able to go in to live with the Alcas when they had recently killed Jim and the others? Well, of course, I would never in the world have been able to go in there. I don't know whether this person is thinking of my moral stamina or whether the, the opportunity was the question, how did you ever have a chance to go in there? I never dreamed of going in there unless God did something unimaginable. But I told the Lord that I was available if there was ever anything he wanted me to do about the Alcas, feeling very safe in the prayer and imagining that there wasn't the slightest chance that he was ever going to ask a widow with a baby to do anything like that. <laughs> but a year and a half after Jim was killed, I was in the right place at the right time. Totally unbeknownst to me, God opened a door for me to meet two Alka women. This is much too long a story to tell tonight, but it's all told in detail in my book called The Savage, My Kinsman. 
And I made contact with two ALCA women, and eventually through them, my daughter and I were able to go in and live with the ALCAs in 1958, and we were there for two years. Lars tells me I have two minutes. I would be pleased to hear any of your, your or Valerie's ideas for instilling the wisdom and knowledge of God in a one-and-a-half-year-old daughter and a three-year-old son. Read the Bible. That's what my father did. We didn't have discussions. We didn't have picture books. We didn't have sharing. There was no such thing as sharing in our family. <laughs> we would not have known what you were talking about. My father read the Bible. That's what I would do. And you can't start too soon. Start before the baby's born. Start reading the Bible to him. But of course, you can tell the stories in your own words. You can point to the stars and the butterflies and the little black dogs and things like that. And all of these things, you can remind them, God made that. God loves that. God made those stars. And I've seen my little two-year-old grandson, who was having a tantrum when his parents had gone out for the evening and left him with me. <laughs> he threw himself on the hall floor and just banged his head and screamed and kicked, and he stiffened himself out, and I tried to pick him up, and I whispered to him, and I patted him, and I spoke to him quietly, and I prayed, Lord, show me what to do to calm this child down. And the Lord answered my prayer by saying, go outside. So I picked this little boy up, and I took him out in the very soft Mississippi night. And as soon as we got out of the door, he said, Granny, maybe we'll see some stars. <laughs> and he was just totally quiet from that moment on. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>